Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. I want to welcome you back to the program again today and thank you for taking time out of your schedule to value what we're saying enough to join us every week and to let us know you're enjoying it. It really is an encouragement to us. Your cards, your letters, your emails to the ministry are just uh, absolutely a blessing to us. And uh, it helps to encourage us because I know we're saying some things that might uh, really stretch your thinking. But I really think sometimes we've held back so long that somebody needs to say some of this, even though it may be a little deep for some, and yet maybe not so much deep for others. But to challenge our thinking into looking at some things, maybe from a different perspective than we have before. What we've been studying over the last several weeks, I think for about five weeks now, we've been doing a series on the book of Hebrews, and we're going to continue to do that, and we're going to continue today with chapter 2. We have laid a lot of foundation over the last five weeks, and if you've missed any of it, you can go back and review it. It is available to you. We have archived everything we have aired to date. We have archived it in our YouTube channel on YouTube, and uh, it is also available via a podcast through iTunes, the audio portions of it, and also as an RSS feed for your Android device. The easiest way to get any of that is simply to go to our website at lenhouse.com, and uh, there is a link directly from our website to our YouTube page, to our podcast, That's the easiest way to go there. Just simply click on that link. It'll take you directly to that. And if you sign up and subscribe to that, you will be notified every time we upload a new program. There's no cost for that. It is absolutely, we are spending a lot of money to be able to give that to you for free to get the gospel out. It's the faithfulness of our partners that enable us to be able to do that. So if the Lord lays it on your heart to, to sow something back into us after we've sowed into you, then we welcome that. We appreciate it. But it is there so you can go back and review, and that way you can catch up on some things that we're saying. Because I've said a bunch of stuff in the last five weeks that I think are absolutely revolutionary as it pertains to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, of course, is written to Hebrews. It's written to Hebrews who are in the transition from an old covenant paradigm to a new covenant paradigm. It's written to a bunch of people who are literally Hebrews who are 30-some years into the new covenant and all kinds of pressures are on them to go back to Judaism and to go back to the old covenant and uh, uh, they are being pressured. They're losing the spoiling of their goods. Loved ones are dying in the arenas. And whoever writes this book writes this incredible treatise of New Covenant truth, probably one of the most powerful pieces of Scripture, I think, in the New Testament that describes the New Covenant. And what he begins to reaffirm to these Hebrew believers is that everything about this New Covenant is better. It's got better promises, better blood, a better priesthood, It's got a better tabernacle. It has better sacrifices. It has better offerings. It has better faith. It has a better city. It has a better tabernacle. It has a better mountain. Everything about this book of Hebrews is either better or more excellent. And so he's trying to bring this comparison between these uh, to these early Hebrews. Last week and the week before that, we dealt with how in Hebrews 1, uh, he talked about that the, the heavens and the earth were about to, to pass like a garment being folded together. And we showed you that that's more than catastrophic events. 
in our natural world, but in the book of Isaiah, when he, what he called Zion. I'll, I'll go back and read that for you because it, I think it's, it's powerful. It's powerfully uh, there. I well, I don't have it up in my notes right now, but in Isaiah 51, he tells them, uh, Behold, I lay, stretch out the heavens and lay the foundation of the earth and say to Zion, you are my people. He did that when they crossed the Red Sea. So he called the, the, the covenant people of God and all that was involved with that old covenant, he called that the heavens and the earth. When I see in the, in, in the second chapter of Hebrews that the world to come he did not put in subjection to angels, but he put them in subjection to a son. I don't see the world to come as simply a global thing, but the whole, uh, uh, the whole lifestyle of the new covenant that was coming with its new tabernacle, with its covenant people that includes both Jew and Gentile, with its new covenant, with its everything about it being new, that that was the heavens and the earth that were about to come on the scene, and one was about to be folded together like a garment, and they were about to be changed. And I talked about how that old garment was the one I believe Jesus talked about when He said, you don't put a piece of new cloth into an old garment. He's talking about an old covenant system that you don't just patch it up, but you're going to have to change it. That's the change that was coming, and the world that was to come was the coming age of the new covenant, and we dealt with a lot of that in the first three segments when we talked about the last days were not the last days of a global situation, they were the last days of an age. You know, recently uh, I was reading something actually by N.T. Wright, who I think is a great theologian, but he said something in passing that just really kind of made me think, I mean, it just kind of just really boomed in my spirit. We read a translation about where Jesus was talking about uh, uh, everlasting life and eternal life. Now let me say this before I say what I'm about to say. I do believe that eternal life includes going to heaven. But I think one of the biggest problems we have in the church is that we have made the gospel about how do I get from here to there instead of realizing the gospel is about how to get what's happening there to operate here. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in the earth. It is about God making all things new. And so I do believe, so I want to say this, I'm going to make sure I say this clearly because we get accused of a lot of stuff that we're not saying. I do believe there's a heaven. I do believe eternal life it includes going to heaven. But if you look at this word eternal, it is a, a Greek word that means aeonian or aeonious life or age. It talks about an age. And, and when I read this book, I was a passing statement about, he, he made this passing statement about life eternal is the life of the coming age. And all of a sudden something boomed in my spirit that said, you know what? Eternal life is more than going to heaven. It includes that. But it's also the life of the coming age. That what the life of the coming age to the hearer of the first century was not the old covenant covenant of death, but the new covenant covenant of life that Jesus defines. He said, this is life eternal, that you would know the Father. That's eternal life is knowing the Father. Now all of a sudden I begin to realize that the life of the coming age was living life in the context of sonship. 
knowing God as a father. And you know, that's not a strange concept to most of us in the church to call him our father. But you see, Jesus, they were about to stone him to death because he called God his father. But not only did he call God his father, but he said, you know, I'm going to my God and your God. I'm going to my father and your father. And so he includes us in this parenthood, if you will, of God, where he begins to include us, where we can know God not as a uh, slave master or that we would be servants of God. That's old covenant. That's what they felt like when they came out of Egypt. They were servants. God really wanted to make them sons, but they had such a slave mentality that they couldn't move away from that slave mentality. But I love, you know, even in the New Testament, John 14, when Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless, the Greek word for comfortless there is orphanos, which is the word we translate orphans. I'm not going to leave you orphans. You have a father, and you're going to live life in the context of sonship with a father-son relationship because the life of the coming age was a life in a relationship with a father who would become your divine supply. Now let me, let me come and read this, and I, I think I'll just read it to you from the Message Bible because it makes it so much clearer. It said, it was crucial that we keep a firm grip on what we've heard so that we don't drift off. If the old message delivered by angels was valid and nobody got away with anything, do you think we can risk neglecting this latest message, this magnificent salvation? Now the first message delivered by angels, again, he's dealing with the old covenant of the law. But the new message is the message of salvation, and if you neglect it, if you don't receive this salvation, see some of the judgment that was coming that he talks about even in this book of Hebrews is a judgment that would come upon apostate Israel and that old system in A.D. 70 when the old temple would be destroyed and the old covenant people would be destroyed and God would give birth to a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, a new temple, a new priesthood. Uh, everything about it would become new. That was the world to come. That was the life of the coming age. And we are not waiting on that. We should be living in that right now with ongoing results because we're a part of that whole new creation. He said, first of all, it was delivered in the person, it was delivered in person by the master, then accurately passed on to us by those who heard it from him, all the while God was validating it with gifts through the Holy Spirit, all sorts of signs and miracles as he saw fit. God didn't put angels in charge of this business of salvation that we're dealing with here. I like that. He didn't put angels in charge. He put a son. Watch this. It says in Scripture, what is man? He didn't, let me go back and read again, verse 9. God didn't put angels in charge of this business of salvation that we're dealing with here. It says in Scripture, what is man and woman that you bother with them? That's a quote from Psalm 8 when he said, when I consider the sun, the moon, the stars, and the works of thy hands, and all that thou hast created. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, and you gave him, you, you, you gave him authority and dominion over the works of your hands. God did that not to angels. He did it to a man and woman of God. He did that in Eden's mystery garden, and that man and that woman lost that dominion, but Jesus restored it through His death, His burial, and His resurrection. He said, what is man and woman that you bother with them? Why take a second look their way? 
You made them not quite as high as angels, bright with Eden's dawn light. Then you put them in charge of your entire handcrafted world. God put man in charge. I wish we could really get the people of God to realize, and the believers, their authority and dominion. I think we really, you know, you might think me to be crazy, but I really think sometimes we need to really stand, and I do this, and pray and rebuke even some of the storms that come, because I don't know that we really realize the full authority that we have and the power to speak to things and to, to change circumstances that are around us. Even as it relates to our own bodies and our own health and our own families, we need to begin to speak some things because where the word of a king is, there's power and dominion belongs to the people of God. The authority of the believer is we've got authority over all the works of the enemy. That's why when Jesus, of course, began to heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out devils, they started knowing the kingdom of God has come to us because we're seeing a demonstration of something we've never seen before. When even the winds and the seas obey Him. Man, that's powerful. They said, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey? I'll tell you what manner of man it was. It was a man who was back to relationship with God, with dominion as high as a bird can fly, deep as a fish can swim, and even above through his death, burial, and resurrection, higher than the heavens, deeper than the deepest depth, that there's nothing outside of his jurisdiction. But when God put them in charge of everything, nothing was excluded, but we don't see it yet. Don't see everything under human jurisdiction. Watch this. What we do see is Jesus made not quite as high as angels, and then through the experience of death, crowned so much higher than angel than any angel, with a glory bright with Eden's dawn light, in that death by God's grace, He fully experienced death in every person's place. It goes on to say here, I think that's so powerful, that, that uh, He puts Jesus back in that place, who experienced death, so that not even death has any dominion. I mean, he's got dominion even beyond, hallelujah, he has dominion over death, hell, and, the, and has the, the keys of death, hell, and the grave. He said, it goes on to say, it makes good sense that the God who got everything started and keeps everything going now completes the work by making the salvation pioneer perfect through suffering as he leads all these people to glory. Since the one who saves and those who are saved by a common origin, Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't hesitate to treat them as family, saying, I'll tell my good friends, my brothers and sisters, all I know about you. I'll join them in worship and praise to you. Again, he puts himself in the same family circle when he says, even I live by placing my trust in God, and yet again I'm here with the children God gave me. Since the children are made of flesh and blood, it's logical that the Savior took on flesh and blood in order to rescue them by His death, by embracing death, taking it into Himself. He destroyed the devil's hold on death and freed all who cower through life, scared to death of death. It's obvious, of course, that He didn't go to all this trouble for angels. It was for people like us, children of Abraham. That's why he had to enter into every detail of human life. Then when he came before God as high priest to get rid of the people's sins, he would have already experienced it all himself, all the pain, all the testing, and would be able to help where help was needed. I love that. Now he comes back again and says to them, listen, he not only put 
man in charge. He did not put it under the hands of angels. He put it in the hands of man and woman. You saw that here just a few minutes ago. Man and woman relinquished that dominion, quit functioning in that dominion, but Jesus restored back to that same dominion through His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Amazingly, you know, the curse of Adam was death, and Jesus through death destroys him that has the power of death, that is the devil. And I said to you in an earlier segment, it's amazing to me that the first Adam, he left heaven's splendor and was joined to his bride through rebellion and disobedience, but Jesus left heaven and was joined to his bride through obedience, and because his obedience reversed Adam's disobedience, uh, and that Jesus' death reversed the curse of death on the human family, and was restored back to dominion with this ongoing work of new creation and bringing about the salvation to humanity. And then he not only does that, but he talks about Jesus becoming the Son with authority. But I love this, because he doesn't exclude us then. He goes on to say then, uh, let me see if I can get it. Said, uh, Since the one who saves and those who are saved have a common origin, Jesus doesn't hesitate to treat them as family, saying, I'll tell my good friends, my brothers and sisters, all I know about you. I'll join them in worship to you. And again, he puts himself in the same family circle when he says, even I live by placing my trust in God. And yet again, I'm here with the children God gave me. So we see the first chapter of Hebrews, talking to God, has spoke to us by the Son. The world to come, he did not put in subjection to angels. He put them in subjection to a son. And now as we get to the end of this second chapter, we realize he didn't just bring that one son, but he included an entire family of sons. That what Romans 8 is talking about, they're groaning and travailing for the manifestation of the sons of God, and that this new world is a world that has the life of the coming age or everlasting life, which includes heaven, but is defined by Jesus as living life in the context of sonship and operating, if you will, in the family business by simply functioning out of a relationship with God as your Father. Because it even says here concerning Jesus, even I live by placing my trust in God. See, that's what sonship is about. You know, let me, let me go back. I think I could grab this real quick, but Romans 8 is so powerful in the Message Bible uh, because that's what it talks about, living life in the context of sonship. But uh, let me just begin... Uh, in verse 1 of Romans, they said, with the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, and again, this is the Message Bible, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer live under an, a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. So Jesus, through death, released us from the brutal tyranny of the law of sin and death. God went for the juggler when He sent His own Son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In His Son, Jesus, He personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity. That's what we just saw in chapter 2 of Hebrews. He became a human because it had to be 
If death came by a human, if it came through flesh and blood, it has to come. He did not take on him the nature of angels. He took on him the seed of Abraham. You see, Jesus didn't come when He came on the scene to give us more promises. He came to come to deliver the promise. And one of the promises was to Abraham, I'm going to give you a seed that's going to make your name great, and this seed is going to bless the nations of the earth. This is Jesus, who didn't take on Him the nature of angels, but He took on Him the seed of Abraham. He became a man. The Son of God became the Son of Man, so that the sons of men can become the sons of God. And to as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. And so He didn't, he didn't just enter this, this uh, uh, He went for the juggler when He sent His Son. He didn't deal with the problem of something remote and unimportant in His Son Jesus. He personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered, disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it was, always was, was, was by, the law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, could never have done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of the deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for but we couldn't deliver is accomplished. I love this. As we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, Simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. See, that's what he was talking about. See, sonship is simply embracing what the Spirit is doing in us. What did Jesus say back there in Hebrews 2? That he himself was subject to the Father. That he himself lived this life in the context of depending on God for everything that he needed. To me, living the life in context of sonship is not just a life of keeping rules. It's learning how to do what Jesus said. I don't do nothing unless I see my Father do it. I don't say nothing unless I first hear my Father say, Oh God, help us to come to the place that we can learn how to live out of this relationship, this father-son relationship. I believe God is so anxious to have a relationship with us as a family because His whole heart's desire was a family for himself and a bride for him and a bride for his sons. A royal family, if you will, that would be his vice regents in the earth. Just kind of like, you know, I think even when God called the children of Israel out of Egypt, he said to them, I'm going to make a whole nation of priests. I think God was probably excited when he brought them out thinking, oh God, for the first time I'm going to get to have personal relationship where every man, woman, boy, and girl will have access to me. I'm going to make a whole nation of priests out of you. And I believe that God's intent would have been to take the nation of Israel and to use them as His vice regent in the earth to bring about new creation and to distribute, if you will, to release in the earth the kingdom. I think that was kind of His heart. But the people said to God at the foot of Mount Sinai, when the moment God came down on the mountain and the cloud engulfed it, the people said to Moses, we're afraid of him. You go talk to him, and whatever he says to you, we will do it. And the people forfeited a personal relationship with God for a mediator system. And God said, if that's the way you want it, then bring Aaron and his sons up. And he made a Levitical priesthood out of them. But God's intention was, first of all, to make a whole nation of priests. But the people forfeited 
a personal relationship with God as a father and a son because he says these terms, out of Egypt have I called my son. God wanted to have a father-son relationship, but because these people had a slave mentality, they saw God as Pharaoh, an Egyptian God, who was a taskmaster, and they were afraid of him because anybody who ever saw the face of Pharaoh, whom they considered to be a God, never lived. No man has ever seen God and lived. That's their, that was their thinking. But see, even when God gave them the law, see, I, I, I believe that, 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 that God's original intention with them was to have a nation of priests that would live out of relationship with Him, live out of, instead of embracing rules, simply embracing what the Spirit was doing in them. They could have lived out of a father-son relationship, but the moment they forfeited a personal relationship with God for a mediator system, God gave them rules. The longer you stay away from a personal relationship with God, the more rules you will need. You see, even with the world system today, the longer the world stays away from a personal relationship with a living God, the more rules and laws we're going to have to pass. But the moment you bring them back into relationship, you don't need as many rules because when you live out of the Spirit, that becomes the divine supply. It's almost, as, to me, the picture of in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the great deep. And God simply reared back and said, let there be light, and there was light. And guess what? The light dispelled the darkness, and the chaos dissipates. What's the answer to darkness? Turn the light on. The answer to darkness is not rebuking the darkness. It's not giving darkness rules. It's not giving darkness perimeters. It's turning the light on. And the moment the light shines, the light of the glorious gospel shines, it begins to change men's hearts. I believe the major mission that we ought to have as ministry is to bring people back into a personal relationship with God where He's their Father and their sons, and they live out of this relationship just like Jesus did. And out of that father-son relationship flows this life of the coming age, or this everlasting life, or living life in the context of sonship. But you know what? Peter gets a hold of that. God finally restores what he's doing in the life of the believer, not just the Jewish nation, but the life of the believer when he says to them in that first century, you're a chosen generation, you're a royal priesthood. God brings us back in the new covenant to the priesthood of the believer where every person has access to the living God and every person has access to Him as Father with the Spirit of God as the divine supply and it is out of that that He's able to secure us who are tempted or tested and tried because He was tempted and tried in every way like we are yet without sin. I trust you've been blessed by this segment of chapter 2. We are out of time. Take a moment if you would to uh, call the number on the screen. Somebody standing by, uh, if you'd like to give something via credit card or debit card, there's somebody standing by there that can take that right over the phone. Or you can go to our website. There's a link there to give. You can give uh, by check if you write to the address on the screen. But if you've enjoyed this message, you've enjoyed our ministry, and you're enjoying it, please get behind what we're doing and help us to take the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of His grace around the world. God bless you. Tune in again next week at the same time. I'm very excited to announce the release of my newest book. It is titled, From Law to Grace, A Kingdom Paradigm Shift. 
In this book, we talk about how the gospel is not about a law you have to keep. It is about receiving a life that will keep you. It is not about living this life out of fear. It is about living a life of faith. It is not about rules. It's about a relationship with a loving father. It is about moving from the old covenant government of condemnation to the new covenant government of affirmation. It is about living life as a citizen of the kingdom right now.